This is the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast interview with Bria Murakami and Daniel Goldschmidt. So they organized a hill day where a bunch of music therapists descended upon Springfield, Illinois. And it was a really busy day. A lot of it is chasing down your legislators, trying to get a five-minute meeting with them. And I actually got one, like on my third visit back to my state senator's office. Uh, I got a five-minute meeting, so I really, it was like all my elevator pitches had to like really deliver in that moment. So, you know, he heard my spiel about the bill advocating for music therapy licensure and the kind of gotcha question for me, and he wasn't meaning to be a gotcha question, but he said, you know, a license is meant to protect the public from something. What are we protecting the public against by licensing music therapists? And I really had no concrete answer for him. And that I think is a totally fair question. You know, what makes us stand out as music therapists, we obviously don't own music as a, you know, a therape- the therapeutic benefits of music, we don't own that. So this kind of got me thinking like, wait a minute, like what, what am I trained to do better? Or what am I trained to avoid as a music therapist? And that wasn't a conversation that I had had in any of my classes that I could remember. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. I hope you're having a great day and looking forward to this conversation with Bria and Daniel about music and harm. This is obviously a really important ethical conversation for us all to be having and Bria's model breaks this down into such an accessible um, format. As she mentions in this episode, there's a visual to go along with it. You'll be able to find that in the show notes if you are a visual learner. And the three of us talk about some lived experiences, the importance of this model, um, some of the complications moving forward, but also some of the implications moving forward. And Yeah, I'll let you listen to Bria's backstory about why she decided to create this model in the first place. And um, I think it's a really important example of advocacy and an effective way. How am I trying to say this? This tool is an effective way to advocate for our profession. So stay tuned for that. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by subscribing (laughs) and leaving a review on iTunes. Follow us on social media. We're at Music Therapy Chronicles on all the platforms. Please join our group on Facebook. That'd be a great place to share your own experiences about music and harm, both as a clinician and as a person, um, and have a conversation about this topic and any of the other topics that we have on the show. You can also support the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. 
All right, I hope you enjoy this episode with Daniel and Bria. Welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles, Bria and Daniel. Hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you both doing today? Uh, I'm doing good. I just finished up my work week, so this is fun to be recording a podcast on a weekend because I love podcasts. Yeah, I'm having a great day. Things are good. Good. You know, it was a weird week, but today feels really nice. Can relate. It was a weird week. Even for 2020, it was a weird week. Oh, God. <laughs> It was rapid fire. Like I, I tweeted last night, you know, I thoughts and prayers to the SNL writing team because mm. like, you know, they had the debate. I bet they wrote so much material with that. But then Trump got sick and they're like, ooh, maybe we shouldn't, you know, like <laughs> throw it all in the trash. You know, we got new stuff, but we got to be careful. I don't know. I just. They had a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. So to get us started, will you both tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves and how you got into music therapy? Do you want to go first, Bria? Sure, I can go first. Um, yeah, so my name is Bria Murakami. I am currently the interim director of music therapy at Pacific University, which is up in the Pacific Northwest, kind of outside of Portland. I've been there for, this is my fourth year. Before that, I did grad school at University of Miami, got my master's in music therapy. Before that, I lived in Chicago working with older adults. And then before that, I went to school at Chapman University to get my bachelor's degrees in psychology and music therapy. Unfortunately, that program does not exist anymore. So rest in peace, Chapman Music Therapy. But I continue on. Um, And then before that, I'm from Sacramento, California, and how I got into music therapy was actually because I have terrible performance anxiety. So my mom, you know, was one of those moms that was like, you're going to take piano lessons all until Mm -hmm. you're in this house. While you're Mm -hmm. under this roof, you're taking piano lessons. And I enjoyed piano, but just performance anxiety wasn't going to happen. So I went back, uh, I went to Borders, the bookstore back when that was a thing and just bought a book called Careers in the Music Industry and was flipping through that and saw this thing called Music Therapy, uh, called up every hospital in Sacramento because I was a sophomore and asked to speak to their music therapist so bright eyed and no one knew what I was talking about. But yeah, but now I mean, that was 15 or so years ago so luckily now they're actually music therapists I know that work at those same hospitals so yeah I I mean I think in all of the last decade we've all seen how much music therapy has come more into the mainstream which is a good thing yeah what a cool full circle moment to now know the people working there awesome Mm -hmm. um I'm Daniel I am currently living in my mother's basement love that um (laughs) Like any good They're millennial. <laughs> well, you know, for me, I moved back um, after my master. Well, hold on. Now I'm going in reverse order from the beginning. So I went to the University of Kansas um, when I was 19 to go do music composition and theory. Had never heard of music therapy. All I knew is I didn't really want to do music ed because I had a bad experience in um, high school with the music educators there. So Aww. I was doing composition and stuff and theory and really loved it. But I didn't have it. Like I would write, write the stuff. I applied for the senior sequence the first time. They're like, nope. Second time, they're like, nope. I'm like, okay, I guess I got to 
find something else to do. So I went to music therapy, went over there, and I realized I was actually really excited. And it made a lot more sense mm -hmm. because composition, you know, you're sitting in a room writing stuff and kind of really trying to sell it. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's very much a lonely job. Whereas music therapy, I love people and I love music and I love doing them together. You know, so I it ended up being this kind of, oh, that seems like a good vocation for me. You know, not this emotional connection, but logical. And but then I got into my internship. I moved back to Minneapolis for that and um, and had a really loved it. And I got my first job in Richmond, Virginia in 2013, working at a psych facility. And that was really cool. But it was really intense, um, the kind of corporate psych environment. And mm -hmm. then I started my own practice, did that for four years. That was uh, in Richmond and then moved out to Colorado, uh, moved out to Fort Collins to go to Colorado State for my master's. Then I moved back to Minneapolis about a year ago, just before the national conference and uh, had a hospice job for a bit, but then the, you know, COVID and all that. And so I've been doing this and that since, but, you know, chilling. That's my music therapy journey so far. <laughs> yeah, can relate. <laughs> so you both have moved around a lot. Mm -hmm. But just to say, the reason me and Bria are so close. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other origin story. Like the, the quickest version is I was in Richmond and she was in Miami doing her master's. And um, I was really into music cognition and relating it to music therapy. I'd presented on it at a lot of conferences. And I did a TED talk on that kind of stuff in Richmond. And Bria had put together for her blog, I'm a music therapist.com. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tag that for you. Um, she was putting together a playlist of TED talks by music therapists. And so she had tweeted my thing and then I like messaged her and we back and forth a bit. And then we decided to high five at the next conference. And then I said, hey, let's do a podcast together. And that became the the predecessor for her current podcast, Instrumental. Um, and our friendship also came from that conversation. And <laughs> so we bonded over music cognition and music therapy and uh, and we've been besties ever since. Yeah, we're long distance best friends. So we have like a running list of all the mid-sized Midwestern cities that we've seen each other in person mm -hmm. for all the music therapy and music cognition conferences yeah. we've gone by, to. By we have a list, we mean Bria has a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> she has many spreadsheets to keep track of our friendship. <laughs> Love that. That sounds like true friendship to me. It is actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's Goals. awesome. Okay, wow. enough about friendship. Never, no one wants never, to hear about that. Never enough about friendship. <laughs> Especially right now. Like even your close in distance friends or long in distance friends right now. Because yeah. we're still in the COVID times. And people listening to this podcast in 10 years will be like, what is the COVID times? Oh, they'll know. <laughs> they'll know. As they're huddled by the campfires. Oh. They'll know. Oh, All righty. So do you... Um, do you guys want to touch on instrumental or any of the other stuff? Because you're both uh, creating lots of content for music therapists too. I don't know if you want to want to talk about any of that. Um, I have a podcast called Instrumental. You can find it where you regularly find your podcast listeners. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a translational podcast. So I usually cover basic science musicy things. Uh, things that you would learn about at a music cognition conference, but I always add my spin of, okay, now how do I apply this as a music therapist and try and give my listeners clear takeaways for, hey, here's a fun, practical way to apply this thing we just learned about music in the brain or music and human behavior. It is on a bit of a hiatus right now. I don't usually have time to keep churning out episodes consistently during the school year when I'm teaching, but 
you know, I, I'm coming up on a, a two-month break at the end of November, so more episodes will be coming out then. Good for you. That's about when this will be coming out. So everyone hey. will be ready to hear more of your voice, which is great. Um, <laughs> I love your show. It's one of the first music. I'm, I don't know if labeling it a music therapy podcast is what you'd prefer, but it's the first podcast I found that I was like, this is kind of what I want to create. Like, this is the kind of content I'm looking for. So it was um, nice to see it out there. And I appreciate that you're still going with it when you have the time and making the time to do that because it's a great resource for all of us. Thank you. That's Aww. really sweet. <laughs> and you did it, Bria. Get... <laughs> You've made it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I I like to. I want it to be more of a music science podcast, but I think most of my listeners are actually music therapists because all the you know the algorithms recommended podcasts mm. are all other music therapy podcasts. So mm. um, yeah, if it's helpful for clinicians, that's awesome. If it's just helpful for people that don't want to read scientific papers for fun like I do that's awesome too yeah but for a hot second it recommended uh the Jonathan Van Ness podcast for listeners of instrumental you should check out (laughs) (laughs) so for a second that felt pretty cool I will link that as well as (laughs) everything else you mentioned the blog and the podcast oh awesome All right, so let's get into the meat of our discussion, music and harm. Take it away. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. (laughs) Cue scary music right there. So, yeah, I got interested in this topic. Uh, So when I was living in Chicago, I was on the Illinois State Task Force. And when I was living in Chicago at like 2013, 2014, Illinois was going for a license in music therapy. And so they organized a Hill Day where a bunch of music therapists descended upon Springfield, Illinois. And it was a really busy day. A lot of it is chasing down your legislators, trying Mm -hmm. to get a five minute meeting with them. And I actually got one like on my third visit back to my state senator's office. Uh, I got a five minute meeting. So I really, it was like all my elevator pitches had to like really deliver in that moment. So, you know, he heard my spiel about the bill advocating for music therapy licensure and the kind of gotcha question for me, and he wasn't meaning to be a gotcha question, but he said, you know, a license is meant to protect the public from something. What are we protecting the public against by licensing Mm -hmm. music therapists? And I really had no concrete answer for him. And that, I think, is a totally fair question. You know, what makes us stand out as music therapists? We obviously don't own music as a, you know, a the therapeutic benefits of music. We don't own that. So this kind of got me thinking, like, wait a minute, like, what, what am I trained to do better? Or what am I trained to avoid as a music therapist? And that wasn't a conversation that I had had in any of my classes that I could remember. So I started digging around the psychotherapy literature a little bit. And I mean, Daniel and I've had just, we're starting to have conversations about all that as well. And so all of that came to, I created a model for how we can understand sources of potential harm in music therapy practice. And it's evolved it's had several iterations over the years. Um, and the latest one is under review at music therapy perspectives. So hopefully that will be coming out soon, but I got to get my reviewers' comments back. When did you first present on that again? I presented 
I presented earlier versions of my model at the National Conference in 2017, as well as the Western Region Conference in spring of 2018, I think. Mm. So it's been kind of, it's been out there. Um, and there was also an AMTA Pro podcast about an earlier version of my model. Um, it just, life happened and getting it back into, you know, the published literature has just been a little bit of a, a pause there. Mm. Yeah. And and the reason I'm here <laughs> is because <laughs> all this, um, you know, Bria's model and everything, we've talked a lot about it. And her and I presented together on it at that national conference and did that podcast you mentioned together. Um, and I did like a little presentation for it. And um, but yeah, it's so that's why I'm also part of the team. <laughs> well, Daniel has given me, I mean, we've had lots of conversations and I guess we're talking really abstractly about the model before maybe listeners don't know what it is. Um, Trish, I can send you a picture of the updated model so they can look at it because describing mm. it abstractly is kind of tough. It's this triangle that now is, you know, has these three circles Ooh. around it. That'd be a really great like Radiolab style segment where we're like, one of us starts describing it and the music comes on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's a triangle. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Sorry, I just like had this image in my mind and wanted to share it mid-podcast. Creative arts therapy. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I mean, in those conversations with Daniel, Daniel has a background. What is your, you have a graduate certificate? Oh, during my master's at CSU, I did a certificate in gender power and difference, and I focused mm -hmm. on whiteness and music therapy. Um, well, I did a thesis on whiteness and music therapy, and I presented on that at National in Minneapolis last year, and then I presented it, quote unquote, in South Africa this summer. Not actually, it was online, but for the South Africa World Congress. And then I'm doing a talk for the Minnesota, the Music Therapy Association of Minnesota this month, and then in California in January. So that's like a niche I'm kind of getting into, I guess, is looking at some race stuff uh, about white supremacy in music therapy. And so that's something Bree and I have talked a lot about. Yeah. And so in those conversations about, you know, Daniel bringing up like, well, okay, well, your background in social justice definitely helped me see, hey, there's this like bigger contextual environment around your my original triangle. Um, and so, I mean, our conversations definitely informed the next evolution of my model that um, is currently under review that was not part of the AMTA Pro podcast when we did that in 2017. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's why you're here. Oh, yeah. That thing. Thanks. Well, <laughs> that's a great example of music and harm and how lack of education with racial oh, yeah. justice and music therapy can can be um, harmful, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And we're, yeah. we're really, as a profession, start, um, I don't want to say starting because obviously you've done this work, but more of us are coming to the table to to look at that as a topic uh, i also want to clarify that like i'm like i've been doing it for like a year but there are people who've been doing it for decades yeah. <laughs> so people just, before me <laughs> yeah so just to name that for a second because um uh so we're not getting credit where it's not due um but yeah like the white i mean even i just saw someone uh comment on something the other day about um a kid in one of their groups was like oh i was gonna pick a rap song for this thing but i didn't i didn't want it to be inappropriate so i picked this song instead and that to me is just so harmful, not just because it's painful, but because that child had internalized that this type of music was wrong and bad, mm. you know? So that, and that's something that music therapists are teaching by accident or maybe on purpose in certain cases, but 
just by saying, oh, that's inappropriate. No, we can't do that. When it's something that really is based in our lack of knowledge about rap music, for instance, or our cultural, um, the way, well, anyway, we, we can go down that rabbit hole later, but that's just so deeply harmful when it's internalized. It's not even just about the moment anymore. Yeah. And yeah, I Trish, I really appreciate you even having us on the podcast. I think one of the more just kind of foundational issues around this topic, more people are talking about it, obviously, and that's increased a lot in the last three years. But a lot of music therapists haven't even considered like, oh, how do I even recognize when harm comes up? Or how am I a source of harm, which obviously doesn't feel good. And then, you know, if we're not aware that harm is possible in our sessions, we can't really be equipped um, personally, or we can't equip the next generation of music therapy students to, okay, what are the best practices for responding to harm and minimizing and eliminating harm in our sessions in an immediate way and also how can we reduce harmful interactions with our clients before the negative reactions or responses even have a chance to come up Mm -hmm. yeah just kind of like that timeline of being able to talk about harm before it could possibly happen trying to like figure out how it might happen how to deal with it when it is happening right now and how to assess a session and see if it was harmful from the future you know so it's kind of all across that time span of a engagement with a client Mm -hmm. or in well in the whiteness stuff, I also dig into in education and supervision and like, you know, recruiting the whole shebang, but the models about the client therapist relationship. Yeah. So you mentioned that it's a, it was, or it is a triangle depending on which iteration we're looking at mm-hmm. uh, with the circle. So for anyone who's like in their car and can't look at the picture right now, can you try <laughs> and break it down for them? Uh, whether if it's a visual or just an explanation how you do that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So first, um, the triangle is the corners of the triangle are formed by the three basic ingredients that define music therapy. So think, uh, the top, we're thinking of an equilateral triangle. So at the very top, um, is the client the, you know, we need a client, a service user, I suppose in this case, um, the client is a willing participant generally, but they're not necessarily responsible for maintaining safety because, you know, they're the one that's doing the therapeutic work. Mm. On the left side of the triangle, that's the music. So that's any auditory event that arises in the music therapy session. Of course, it can be recorded or live or spontaneous improvisations. Uh, Let's see. And then the third ingredient, the right corner of the triangle is the music therapist. And so that is who we are both as an individual, like my personality, my style, my philosophy of music therapy, and my decision that I make. Um, Okay, so then we've got, so clients at the top, music is in the left corner, the music therapist is in the right corner. Then the sides of the triangle are the relationships or interactions that are formed between each of those three corners. So if we, uh, the right side would connect the client and the music therapist. So that is the therapeutic relationship, that alliance, that rapport, that trust that's built over the course of therapy. The bottom side of the triangle connecting the music therapist to the music, I'm calling that the therapeutic applications of music. Mm -hmm. So those are the decisions, often musical decisions or therapeutic decisions that the therapist is making in the moment to facilitate the session, or it might be their session planning, which which NMT protocol am I going to bring in, or how am I going to respond to 
this interaction amongst the group members. And then the final side of the triangle on the left side connects the music to the client. And I'm calling these the client music associations. So this would be the client's preferences or any conditioned responses to certain, um, I don't know, musical timbres or musical patterns or their associations and thoughts about the musical artist or, you know, all these kind of extra musical associations that can also come up. So that's our triangle. And then the five, the newer piece, um, there's like, imagine three concentric circles all around the, like encompassing the entire triangle. And I'm calling these the ecological factors because of course therapy does not happen in a vacuum. There's always this context that is in the background that we, some things we may be consciously aware of, other things we're not consciously aware of when we're leading our session. So like the innermost circle, I'm calling those the micro ecological factors. So that's the immediate session environment. So are there other group members? Um, what time of day is the session taking place and what's the physical mm -hmm. environment? Kind of the middle circle, I'm calling those meso-ecological factors. So these are, I don't know, more contextual factors that are longer term specific to the client. So the client's um, cultural identities, the music therapist's cultural identities, their personalities, that kind of thing. And then the outermost circle, I'm calling those macro-ecological factors. So these are societal and political forces at play in whatever like society, yeah, like a <laughs> pandemic, you know, a, a client's not able to access services as much or, um, you know, the effects of racism and how that comes into play in a music therapy session or the, the state of the healthcare system at large and whether that impacts the client's ability to access music therapy services as well. So all that to say, that's a lot of different pieces at play in all of our music therapy sessions. I, my model posits that all of those pieces except the client can be a potential source of harm in clinical music therapy practice. Mm -hmm. So hopefully not all of them are a source of harm that converge all at once. But um, yeah, my paper lays out like, okay, how, how can each of these potentially be a source of harm? And then how can we also reduce harm by waiting or um, changing the importance of the other factors that are not a source of harm as immediately as possible. Yeah, those are all things uh, like you've covered, obviously that's the point, you've covered so many of those variables, but to also put them into that visual, even just your description of it made me like, oh, like it seems that much less overwhelming for me as a music therapist to keep all those things in mind being like oh here's my visual with like these are the three points these are the three circles and like from there as you said where am I going to wait things that's um such an accessible way to address this problem so thank you for breaking it down like that it's also beautiful because it can not just be used theoretically, like, look at, you know, this model of harm, but it could even be used diagnostically. Mm. That after a session, you'd say, something didn't go right. Let's, like, look at it. This one intervention, here's what happened. And you can look at these different areas and go, well, you know, and use it as a way to visualize. I mean, I just picture an assessment that someone could have yeah. in, like, supervision, you know, where you have that triangle and the three circles and, all right, let's figure it out, you know. And, yeah. and, and part of the model also is this, you know, just like, with the structure, you know, if one area gets 
you know, harmed in some way, as long as there's a lot of strength in the other areas, you'll probably be, be probably be fine. Mm -hmm. But the more areas that get weakened or harmed in these ways, the more likely it's like you can't save it or it's catastrophic or it's deeply harmful. Um, which I, actually the models help me in other areas of life too. <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where it's like this thing, like it's about how many plates you're dropping, you know, yeah. not just, um, yeah. So, so it's helped me a lot. I know thinking of this model in, um, because we were talking about this model just as I started my master's and, um, TAing and supervision and stuff. So it was helpful for me in moving forward with all that too, teaching, yeah. young, teaching, uh, practicum students. And back to the original genesis of this project, what a great, um, not only practical, but tangible example to give to someone asking about, like, what are we protecting the public from? And you literally mm -hmm. have, like, this is it. This is what we are trained in that other music professionals are less likely to be trained in mm -hmm. uh, and why it's important that we are licensed and recognized and advocacy things. Absolutely. And I mean, all this to say, even though I like things to be as delineated and clear and articulated as possible, when, you know, when I recognize that something didn't go as well as it could have or potential harm has occurred, there's going to be disagreements. I mean, a lot of these factors, of course, interact and overlap with each other. So any discussion about harm, if it comes up in supervision or an education setting, should be that ongoing conversation. And like tearing this apart is obviously not straightforward. So I do want to acknowledge that as well. Um, I also have, I, in my paper, I propose some def definitions of harm. I think most of us could see like, oh, big, you know, harm could be everything's falling apart, stuff hits the fan. But um, I did also want to break that down as well, because if we don't know how to, if we don't have like at least a working definition of harm, like what are we actually trying to avoid in session? So in my paper, I posit that there are two types of harm that manifest. So there's like six ways that harm can arise in our music therapy sessions and then how the client actually experiences that harm can be either physical or psychological um so yeah if i can read those definitions i don't want to i want to be really precise because this is a very <laughs> complicated thing so um my definition of physical harm again this isn't this is under peer review right now it's not published yet uh, but physical harm is defined as an actual or perceived negative effect beyond the scope of the therapeutic objective arising from a physiological mechanism or system. So that's really wordy. A negative effect is anything that the client perceives as negative that they think came from the therapeutic session. So not all negative effects are necessarily harmful because we know that when we're doing the therapeutic work, negative feelings are going to come up. Mm -hmm. Or if you're doing a physical therapy session, you know, you might be sore after it, but, you know, being sore might just mean, okay, like my muscles are healing, they're coming back stronger, and it's still in service of why you're in physical therapy. My definitions of harm are saying, hey, there are going to be, there may be negative effects that come up, but it's not actually in service of why we're there for therapy. 
So physical harm, I theorize, are those negative effects that don't actually serve the therapeutic goal. And they come from like a bodily system or it manifests as like a physiological effect in the client's body. The other type of harm I theorize is psychological harm. So I'll read that definition, but it's very similar. Psychological harm is defined as an actual or perceived negative effect beyond the scope of the therapeutic objective arising from a psychological mechanism or system. So that might be the triggering of trauma or, you know, negative emotional feelings that aren't, that are like too much. So if a client starts crying uncontrollably and it's not actually helping them process any of what's coming up in therapy something like that yeah when you um initially mentioned physical and then you explained it i immediately thought of the body keeps the score by mm-hmm. Vanderkolk. Mm-hmm. yeah so if anyone listening yeah. hasn't read that i'll link it um but and then you explained it wonderfully about like your body will react to things <laughs> whether you know you you really recognize it or not and uh that is just like you're saying it is a way to identify harm um and how how it's showing up for the client yeah do either of you want to add to that i mean i'm just curious because daniel and i have like as we're talking through this like, oh, how do how have we seen harm arise in our own practices? Mm. Or um, and also naming that I think harm, either physical or psychological harm, is also on a spectrum. It's not like a yes, harm happened or it didn't. So mm. there, I'm sure there's like, hopefully, I have never caused severe harm to any of my clients. I don't think I have that I know of, but I've certainly inadvertently caused harm to clients um, that might be kind of mild or it could be kind of like a moderate intensity. So I think there's a spectrum of intensity of harm as it's experienced by the client, as well as a timing aspect to it. So there, you know, harm might arise, you know, if I'm seeing a client regularly, harm might arise before the session. Um, Of course, it can happen during the session or the client might actually experience those harmful effects after our session has finished. So there's a lot to keep track mm. of for us as clinicians. Um, so I mean, like I can share some examples um, and I just want to name like, this has taken me a lot of processing and mm. it doesn't feel good for me to say I'm, I've am i caused harm to my clients, but I, I just kind of want to normalize that completely avoiding negative effects um, and harm probably isn't realistic because we live in the real world. Well, what's that number with um, therapists in general? How many of them perceive themselves to have caused harm versus how many of their patients perceived them to have been harmful? I bet there's a big discrepancy there. Yeah. Do you remember those numbers, Bria? I don't remember the numbers, but, um, and I can send my reference list, but there is a study that was done with psychotherapists and they, I think they were at like a student counseling center. Um, So they had all of the clients fill out this survey of like, oh, how have your symptoms gotten worse since your last therapy appointment? And then they corroborated that with the um, with the therapist notes for that session. And so the researchers in the study were trying to see, like, if the client experiences a really 
severe increase in, you know, negative symptomology, will the therapist pick up on that and report as such in their therapeutic notes about that client? And off, I mean, not often enough, clients were not picking up their uh, that their clients were like more depressive or crying more, and they weren't putting this in their actual notes that's supposed to be their record and summary of how their client is doing. So mm. I don't think that we can trust ourselves 100% to see when we're when harm is coming up in our sessions. I really think that this is an important reason why more music therapists should seek out peer supervision. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, even I think back to my business days and I now can look back at so many things like, oh boy, that wasn't great. <laughs> like things, I mean, from in any area for as a clinician or as a as a business owner. And those are things at the time I thought I was doing fine. You know, I didn't think I would need supervision because I thought, I, but like if it was something I had been talking with someone about, they might've said, you know, Daniel, <laughs> like why, why are you making this choice? You know? Um, Do you mind sharing a specific example? Um... Or I can share some examples. Well, I'm not, not from my practice, but I there's I have kind of like a quote unquote favorite like vignette for music and harm. Can we? It's the one, and I can't remember whose story it is, but um, basically that there was a, a young adult who had who had been in a car accident or something and was experiencing experiencing a disorder of consciousness, and. Um, they were playing classical music in the guy's room mm. and the vitals were not looking good. He was very stressed out. Like all these things were going on and the music therapist shows up and is like, wait, well, why are they playing classical? And the mom's like, oh, it's, you know, it's the best music. And she's like, well, what, what was your son's favorite music? Oh, rap, you know, like, and the mom was all grumpy about it. And then, so they put on rap and all of a sudden physiological signs got more relaxed, more calm. Things got a lot better. Um, and so that's not harm in the sense of a music therapist inflicting harm, but it is about music inflicting harm on a person in a way that they couldn't control. Um, yeah, I think that was Lilith Grand who shared about when she was working at a pediatric medical facility and the client was having such, um, such a poor physiological reaction to hearing this classical music that was meant to be relaxing, but I believe the patient's heart rate was getting to dangerously high levels where they were going to have to sedate him even further. Mm. So they did the the um, consult with Lilith when she was working as a music therapist there. And I think that's a YouTube clip, right, Daniel? That sounds right. I thought I remembered it being okay. like interviewish. Thank you. Between the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> The vignette, so not a young adult, a teenager or something. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and in that example, what's also interesting is with the original model, with the triangle, you can kind of talk about how the music was causing harm, how the musical, extra musical association, et cetera. But that ecological piece as well, we get also into white supremacy, this idea that classical music is the greatest mm -hmm. of the musics, and that's the one that is universal and will heal everyone, which is this belief that still pervades some aspects of music in music therapy. And... So that's something that I just want to name that didn't exist in the initial model, but now in the newest one is actually addressable, the ecological aspects. My brain keeps saying Mozart makes you smart. Mm -hmm. And, you know, an example yeah. of that. The Mozart effect is low-key white supremacist or maybe medium key. <laughs> it's a like, minor key. It's not just key, wrong. It's white supremacist. It's like Phrygian mode key or something. <laughs> yeah. But for real. We met a guy. Bri and I did a music cognition research workshop one time mm -hmm. and 
and and one of our classmates who I don't think will listen to this podcast, but was kind of talking about the, oh, this one Mozart piano concerto like stops seizure disorders, you know, and we're like, oh, let's look at that research. And it was like there was no control groups. It was all rats. They were listening to it 14 hours a day. I mean, it was, it was just wild stuff that in no way was helpful. And clearly no music therapist was on the team. And so. Yeah, so and and the harm there is actually even before all this other stuff, it's in the funding going to that instead of things that'll actually help people. Um, yeah. But that's neither here nor there. Sorry. I think <laughs> kind of like maybe a broad statement for what we're kind of dancing around right now is like there's no one size fits all for music, and like <clears> recognizing <throat> that is a great place to start. And like that's not a new idea for anyone, but just to well, think that and internalize that- it. Let's zoom that out even more. There's something called monocultural universalism, and mm-hmm. that's this idea that what works, I mean, it's simply what works for me, what I believe to be correct is what everyone believes to be correct. But you make that about cultural belief. So in the case of, for instance, music therapy, that's the marriage of psychology and music and, you know, these types of, and classical music education. I mean, a lot of the ideas come from like a patriarchal whiteness aspect of culture. And so as long as we're in that system, we then bestow that upon our clients who that can again be so when we zoom out on just saying oh music can be harmful it's like sorry remind me what you said exactly because i had i lost it but i said oh uh there's no one size fits all yes so there's no one size fits all for the music but also for any form of the interaction in the therapeutic relationship Mm. you know this is you know get talking about harm and whatnot is for every profession but because our medium is music that gives us a really deeply connected to identity way to cause harm Mm. um which i think is kind of something really important to say is music all therapists need to have this knowledge but music therapists have double the chance to do something harmful with it Mm. um and i think that's why we have to take it really seriously and not just oh let's meet our you know other therapeutic profession you know professions where they're at too like our we'll just catch up to them we need to get beyond that because we have that potential with our medium yeah that's making me think of um Kate from Creative Therapy Umbrella. I don't remember what episode she just released, but it one of the quotes from the guest was something to the effect of we need to stop saying that music is a non-threatening medium. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, it I mean, honestly, I feel like us being able to articulate potential harm in music therapy and then working this into our educational systems and having these conversations and also starting to, you know, via research or some kind of clinical consensus, say, here are the best practices for addressing harm. This is a defining feature of who we are as a profession, Mm. right? It's not just that, I mean, I guess I'm getting a little, maybe, uh, these are my own opinions, I'll say that. But Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even say necessarily that music therapists are always the best musician in the room because Mm -hmm. music therapists come from so many different, you know, my students come from so many different backgrounds. Some have played flute just in their high school band and they're starting piano and guitar and voice from scratch. And then I have students that we're touring gig musicians and have a great ear, but they're not as able well to like, uh, you know, read sheet music as well. So they're learning that. And so, you know, the average music therapist, I don't, maybe there is no average music therapist, but 
you know, I've been in situations where I'm working with a musician or sometimes my clients have like way better guitar skills than me. So, you know, one, again, like we, we're not the only ones that can use music to help others. We're not necessarily the best musicians in the room as, again, as a professional whole, I'm not saying it like Daniel's a very competent musician um, and has a great ear. I don't quite have that. Um, but I think that as a profession, if we can come to a consensus and say, you know, like we are, we are prepared to address harm and minimize that harm in a clinical setting. I really think this is a way that we can differentiate and further, you know, make an argument for why you should have a music therapist on staff. Hmm. Yeah. So this is obviously a much broader conversation and, um, we could talk about this for a long time, but I want to be cognizant of your time and respectful of it. So is there anything else you want to cover or dive into before we move into the rapid fire questions? You know, just to mention it that, you know, we're talking about harm in kind of the like really direct therapy sense, but also talking about and defining harm is also deeply important for advocacy mm. because just like with Bria's origin story, you know, being able to say like, why, why should music therapists be licensed or have a degree if there's no, no harm to be done? Who's, why does it matter? You know, and so being able to define that and then, of course, being able to teach that, because that's the other thing is you see on Music Therapists Unite all the time, like someone posts like, oh, hey, this person is calling it music therapy. Do we know them? And, you know, people are like, oh, no, that's not music. Therapy. It's like, who, like, or, oh, that'll be harmful. It's like, we don't know that. Yeah. We don't actually have any studies showing that there's worse outcomes for a non-music therapist than a music therapist doing a music intervention in a room. So being able to define this and teach based on like this assumption that harm exists just like good exists helps us teach better, do less harm, and be more legitimate as a certified profession. Um, as like, so very macro. Because <laughs> um, it's important for us at our messaging and advocacy, especially on a political level, to not just say, look at all the great things we can do, but to say, and look what all the harmful things that can happen for some if someone who is untrained does it. As of right now, there isn't really much training on a harm and contraindication. So we don't really have that much of a leg to stand on saying we're better or safer or more competent. And it's an ethical I, dilemma to study it, right? Yeah. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, I, it's an ethical dilemma to induce harm yeah. in, you know, a situation. I don't think all is lost. I think there are probably ways that if music therapy researchers begin to actively monitor for adverse effects in their studies that they're already doing. So checking in with their participants mm -hmm. um, and just like having more conversations, maybe serving music therapists and saying, when have you noticed these negative effects rising? I think there's other ways that we can build a stronger evidence base and understanding for how harm is actually coming up. In my paper, I also propose because like I, I can imagine some listeners and I felt this as well, like in my process of building this model, like, oh my gosh, there's six potential sources of harm. How, how am I going to address this? Um, so if I can go through that really quick. So if you're, if you're trying to reduce harm, I do have some initial steps. Um, so first, the first step is just vigilant observation and verifying how our clients are responding in the session. So I was working, um, I was playing some, you know, doing some finger picking guitar and providing a musical background for a drawing activity. And I checked in with um, these teenagers 
that were, you know, drawing the whole time. And I said, hey, like, how was the music for you? And luckily, one of them was comfortable enough to say, you know, like, there was something about the guitar of your the timbre of your guitar that was like really ringing in my ears the wrong way. And I thanked them and I said, you know, in the future, you can tell me, I prefer if you tell me if that's not helpful to your experience, because I wouldn't have necessarily, I wasn't picking up on it in their facial expressions. And it wasn't so awful that they were covering their ears and running out of the room. So I think checking in with our clients experiences. um, And then if we are noticing that our client is having a negative response using the model okay like trying to figure out based on our best intuition or having our clients tell us like what do you feel is negative about this experience um so which of the six potential sources that is whether it's um you know something an association they're having to the music or an acoustic quality of the music or Um, some kind of musical or non-musical decision that we've made as a music therapist or something in the environment. And then again, re-weighting or, um, you know, drawing on the strengths of the other components um, to eliminate the harm or reduce it as much as possible. So, you know, maybe if a client, uh, you inadvertently choose a song that triggers a really negative emotional memory, Hopefully you have a strong therapeutic relationship that you can call on and fade out the music, fade out the offending source of harm. Um, Yeah, and hopefully addressing that as immediately and as completely and fully as possible. Yeah. That was um, everything you've explained. Obviously, you've put a lot of time and effort into it into what you're doing and it it just feels very actionable hearing you say it like it's very digestible and it's very accessible and I appreciate that um because I am not one of those people that reads research for fun which is also why I love your podcast because I'm like oh like this just it makes it I don't want to say easy but it makes it easy for me to implement as a clinician absolutely yeah I I know (laughs) I know uh, at least my students have said, like, sometimes I talk in these very abstract ways, but at the end of the day, I really, I don't want it to stay in the abstract space. I'm all about like, okay, now let's do something about it. Let's be practical. So I'm really glad to hear that because this is a really complex thing that we don't have a lot of hard evidence about. So our field, again, is just starting this conversation and more is definitely going to come up. Um, The more folks that hear about this and just start to continue on in this discussion. I also want to say you mentioned actionable that, um, yeah, like literally anyone listening to this today who's practicing, like, think about it. You know, a lot of folks, I just remember the colleagues I've had back in the day who would, you know, really blame the clients for a session not going well, Uh you know, they'd, and, and I've left every session I've ever done, especially the ones that don't go well, like ask myself, what did I, what did I do that didn't work? What could I do that would make it work better? You know, kind of seeing both sides of it. And with all my practicum students, I always made sure to say, like whenever someone said, oh, they just didn't seem, I'm like, don't blame the client. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it's very possible that like they're having a tough day or like whatever it is, but it's, you always got to focus on yourself and just remembering that and then having this model as a way to conceptualize that, it's deeply actionable. Mm-hmm. So I hope your listeners go forth and think about this stuff when it's happening. Yeah. Me too. All right. Are you feeling ready for the rapid fire questions? Sure. Do you want to like go back and forth, Bria, or are we both answering? I mean, I think we're both answering, just not at the same time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
So same time talking over each other. Got it. <laughs> Love All right, that. you go first each time, Bria, just to make it okay. easy. Thanks, okay, thanks. <laughs> All right, the first one is coffee or tea? Coffee. Tea. Early bird or night owl? Early uh... bird. <laughs> <laughs> Ready. Hopeful early bird. <laughs> I, I'm a night owl by temperament, but I'm really trying to <laughs> by trade. a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Something you'd tell your younger self. Oh, God. Uh, people aren't that scary. I'm actually super introverted. And so um, I also had social anxiety in high school. So I've luckily come you know, through where I am not scared of people anymore. But that was definitely a part of me. I wanted to be a music therapist so badly. I was like, okay, I'm going to get over this social anxiety being around people. Um, but that was definitely a huge process for me all i can think of is uh something about like get your coping skills in order mm. <laughs> yeah your music therapy elevator speech uh oh gosh uh music therapy is the use of music as a tool to help people be a better version of themselves Ooh, that's a good one bria that's a good one I don't think we've pitched for each other before. No. <laughs> but I've definitely heard you. Anyway, mine is um, music therapy is using music as the vehicle for therapeutic change. And and then if that like piques their interest and I go, for example, and I give them an example, like I have like a couple go to's, like one about a kid, one about an older adult where like I describe the musical activity, then say, now what just happened? And then we like take it apart together. Like we're working on impulse control. We did it with this. We're working on fine motor grip. We were holding xylophone mallets, you know, like. I take it apart with the person. If they're still interested, I go deeper. But I kind of have these different stingers that I'm testing. Yeah. Oh, my go-to example is always melodic intonation therapy because it seems like a really sexy, like, oh, yeah. neuroplasticity thing to do. Um, even though I've only done, I've only facilitated melodic intonation therapy in a handful of sessions myself. But wow. for me, that's like such a... I can kind of get someone on board. Oh, like we can use this back door to teach someone to sing again and we're changing their brain. So yeah. that's my go-to example. Yeah. Those are both great hooks. Get people's <laughs> attention. We're very good. Obviously. <laughs> put a lot of thought into it to be that quick and have them that concise. I just embarrassed Bria. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite self-care practice. Sleep. Just getting enough sleep. Um, when it's not a pandemic, exercise was really, really good. And I was running again, and then I stopped. And then I was in a workout class, and I hurt my back. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. But um, other than exercise, I've been playing a lot of music lately, and it's been cool. Good for you. Getting my chops back. Can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> Something currently adding value to your life. I'm not supposed to think too hard about this. It's okay. Um, <laughs> you can think as long as you want. They're your answers. <laughs> we can edit out the silence. <laughs> or not. <laughs> just leave the silence. See the listeners make them oh, reflect yeah. on it. So they're checking their volume button, seeing if it's still working. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
for any commuting music therapists out there, I highly recommend getting um, some nail clippers to keep in your car. Cause like when you have a hangnail and like, <laughs> they're just so annoying. Cause I, at least I just notice it on my fingers all the time. So keeping a nail clipper in my car has like paid off exponentially. Cause I can just like clip it off when I'm in a red light or something. And my day is like 5% better. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I mentioned at the beginning, I'm living at my mom's place. I, it's been really nice reconnecting with my family Aww. this last year. Yeah. Um, you know, I moved away in 2013 and I was, I was here for like a year during internship, but besides that I've been gone for 13 years. So being able to reconnect with my, like my mom and my brother as like a co-adult has been kind of cool. And it's been very tolerable. Like I'm not like sad living at home. Like it's been very nice. I do want my own place, but it's not intolerable. And I'm, I'm happy with that. And it adds value to my life. My favorite quote when I hear people talk about things like that, and obviously I'm not good at remembering actual quotes, but <laughs> it's about it's about like uh, if you ever think you've achieved enlightenment, go spend some time with your family. Oh gosh, because <laughs> it just it you know like it's like oh I have more to learn and more work to do. So yeah. I'm really glad that you're uh, you are enjoying spending time with yeah. your family. And it's so easy to revert back to a younger self when you're in an environment that you were younger in, yes. like visiting summer <laughs> camp even, you know? And so taking my adult skills to my family has been actually really interesting saying, you know, saying, you know, I want to be a good roommate to my mom and my brother, you know, mm -hmm. like here's how I'm doing that versus just being a brat because I grew up here, you know, yeah. and, um, and contributing and helping and challenging, you know, and just, you know, really building that adult relationship with my family versus just like a post-child relationship. Yeah, how beautiful. I love that. All right, your favorite song or intervention to use in a session? Uh, there's a Caleb Kane song called In Your Own Way that I found really helpful when I was doing some emotional processing. And I think it's just really great to bring in for a song discussion. And it's not one of those that was ever a top 10 hit, mm. but I recommend bringing in that song. You know, this might be a cheating answer, but the 12 bar blues format, <laughs> just <laughs> I've of like the top 10 magical things to happen in my music therapy career. At least eight of them were during a 12 bar blues. <laughs> yeah. It's just, just magical things happen. That's like the closest I get to that. Like music is magic kind of thing is, <laughs> Just doing blues with groups of folks. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, the last question is, where can the listeners find you and connect with you? Yeah, so Daniel already mentioned mine, so thanks, Daniel. Um, I have a music therapy blog called imamusictherapist.com, and my music science translational podcast is Instrumental, so you can find that at instrumentalpodcast.com, or if you're on Twitter, I'm at at BriaMTBC. Um, yeah, I'm at DanielNNZ, as in Nancy Nancy Zachary, on Twitter. Um, and then, I don't know, I say some stuff on Facebook. <laughs> like, I don't have a... <laughs> um, <laughs> And then, uh, and you can see me a lot on Bria's content, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just piggybacking. Got you. All right. I will link that as well as the resources we mentioned today, the songs, all that good stuff so that the listeners can find it, dive more into it and um, start applying, applying the model, applying all this stuff more so we can 
be better at what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. More good, less bad. More... The general goal. <laughs> That's the title. More good, less bad. <laughs> yeah. The music. <laughs> I actually like that. <laughs> More good, less bad featuring Bria and Daniel. <laughs> That actually sounds like a good like uh, like TV show. Let's pitch that to Netflix, Bria. Great reality show. There you go. <laughs> well, so on that note, thank you for um, being on the show and sharing this because obviously you have your own platforms to do that. And uh, I'm really grateful to have had this conversation. And I know the listeners will get a lot from it as well. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for inviting us. Of course. Thanks so much, Trisha. Thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. You too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and learned a lot about music and harm, um, some of the complications that may arise in our clinical practice, but also some of the ways to try and mitigate the potential for harm. I think that was my favorite part of Bria's model where she said to weight some of those stronger areas um, to create that support system. Because uh, to me, that was like, it's not just uh, all doom and gloom and like harm harm is inevitable in many situations but there are ways to try and work through it and mitigate it for lack of a better phrase so again I hope you enjoyed this episode I hope you learned a lot if you are enjoying the show please let us know by writing a review on iTunes you can find us on social media at music therapy chronicles I'm posting stuff on Instagram, like questions and polls for all of you. So if you want to give some feedback, maybe not as directly about what you want to see the show on the show um, and different preferences you have about the show, that would be a great way to do that. And if you want to have your own conversation about the podcast episodes and hear other listeners' thoughts, you can do that in our Facebook group. That's at Music Therapy Chronicles, and then you can click the Join Group button from there. Also, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon.com. That really helps the podcast uh, have better production value, and we have a lot of ambitious goals, ideas, and projects moving forward. So please consider becoming a patron on Patreon.com slash Music Therapy Chronicles if that's something you're comfortable with. And if you or someone you know is interested in being on the show, please let me know by sending an email to hello at musictherapychronicles.com. Our quote this week is from Maya Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. <laughs>